All right. Well, my name is Ben, and I have the honor of serving here as lead pastor uh, at Downtown Community Church. Excited everybody's with us. Um, and I want to say a couple things. Number one is that um, next week we're starting a brand new series um, called Back to the Garden. And uh, kind of the emphasis behind this whole series, and one of the things that we know uh, inevitably is as Christians, um, uh, we sin, we mess up, we uh, fall short of the glory of God. And that's universally understood, although in church spaces, oftentimes what that means is we just say, okay, so stop it. Don't do it anymore. And while that's true, um, we oftentimes dismiss learning and kind of doing a biopsy, doing some study and saying, what is it about sin? How do we interact with sin? What causes it? What internally happens? I mean, there's just so many different interesting things and nuances. And what's fascinating is, is you don't have to go anywhere besides, there's a lot more places you could go, but Genesis 2 and 3 um, unpack these ideas so incredibly and so clearly. And so my, my hope is that for all of us who will continue to struggle with sin so long as we are alive on this planet, um, begin to understand how to do that in a way that's healthy and that in fact glorifies God, magnifies the gospel. And if you hear that and you're like, I have no clue what that means, Come back next week. It's going to be awesome, okay? So um, let me pray for us as we get launched this week. Jesus, thank you so much for this time that we have together. I pray as we spend time in your word that you would speak to each and every one of us. And Jesus, whether that is the person in here who has been faithfully following you for a long time, or whether it's the person who just came to church for the first time in a long time, perhaps not even sure if you're there, sure if you exist, that you would speak to each and every one of us through your word today. And so in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. So we're in this series, Counterfeit Habits. Um, and the short version of Counterfeit Habits, are ha- Counterfeit Habits are good habits that become bad habits because they get in the way of the habits that we ought to have. They're good habits that get in the way, that become bad habits because they get in the way of the habits we ought to have. And I've said this every week, um, one of my counterfeit habits that I love and I don't plan on doing anything about is golf, okay? Because I can swing really hard three times, be out of breath, and feel like I got some good cardio in today, right? I don't even walk when I play nine holes. I ride because I'm like, I mean, I could walk to work, but, like, why, right? And so um, it's one of those things where I feel active. I mean, in golf, intrinsically, it's not bad, but it's certainly not the type of cardiovascular stress I should be putting on myself um, at my age, of, of the ripe old age of 38 years old, right? I need to begin to do some stuff that says when I'm 50, I can still walk around the block. When I'm 70, I can still walk around two blocks, right? So they are good habits or good things that become bad things because they become a replacement for what they should be. For instance, in the spiritual realm, we can easily take sermons in fascinating, enlightening, riveting, interesting podcasts and Christian content, and we can consume that to the point where we no longer feel like we have a need for God's word. The problem is, is you can avoid your sin. I can avoid my sin when you hear from me or when I hear from someone else, you know, whatever it might be. But when we are face-to-face with God and it's just us and him and he's speaking to us through his word, which is like a mirror, and he's speaking fresh new truth into our lives, confronting us, helping us to come before him, then the reality is I can't escape the voice and the word and the spirit of God when it's just me and God and his word. Because the primary way God speaks to me is through the scripture. And sermons are good, I hope. And podcasts are good, but that's not a replacement for what is best. And over time, it basically enables bad habits to perpetually exist. 
And so today, I saved this one for last because I think this is the one that probably everybody wants to hear the least. And I'm very well, as a communicator, one of the least wise rhetorical things that you can do is say, hey, this isn't going to be fun, okay? So I just said that because here's what we're going to talk about today. In fact, I say it's not going to be fun. To me, this is like my, one of my favorite subjects to talk about. Today, we're going to talk about everybody's favorite subject to talk about in church, money. Yeah, yeah, that's what I thought was going to happen. Okay, cool. Um, no, so... I know as soon as I said that, right, we're going to talk about money today. Um, there's a solid half of the audience that was like, oh, why did I decide to come to church today, right? Why did I, my friend's here and I wanted it to be like a good sermon, not like a money sermon. And so, you know, why, in the, why, why do we have to talk about this today? And here's what I'm hoping, here's what I'm hoping happens for all of us. Um, that we perhaps walk out today um, with a little bit different view. And here's what I mean by that. When I said we're going to talk about money today, you want to know what about 75% of the room just heard? We're going to talk about giving. Number one, check your projections at the door because that's not what I said. Number two, that's not what we're going to talk about, okay? We're going to talk about a framework that I believe that God has given us that we should view the things that we have in this world. And I'm just telling you, you don't have to believe me because I'm the pastor, and you should know this as we're getting launching into this. Again, some of you, like you hear this and you're like, oh, man. I get it. So you're going to talk about money, and then like six months from now, you're going to drive away with a Porsche that says tithe on the back and a boat that says generosity, right, and a golf cart that says give. You know, hashtag DCC. I don't know, like whatever it is, right? Like that's your thought. Just no, you know, sideways motives here. Um, I, I give more to the church than the church gives me uh, because of the fact that I run a company called Register Smoke Pork Sausage. Now, if you stop buying sausage, we're going to have a problem, okay? But uh, we sell it from... from uh, in a couple of weeks, we're going up a new distribution route. We're basically going to be from South Carolina to Louisiana, Georgia, Mississippi, Alabama, and all down Florida and everywhere in between. So I love you, but I don't need your money, okay? Let me be really clear. And if you give more, you know how much I'm making? No more. You know what we're going to do with it? We're going to add staff to serve you better. Anyways, I digress. I just want you to know that for me, there's no sideways motives, and we're not really even going to talk about giving. What we are going to talk about is a framework. And here's why that framework is important. We all know the financial world is more complex than it has ever been before. Not just with the place in, in, in quickness of information that we understand what's happening in different markets and emerging markets in different parts of the world. There are so many places, so many things, so many financial vehicles. Everything from the... From the from the person who saves their money and puts it, you know, in a little sock drawer to the person who has a bank account to the person who has an investment portfolio to the person who is actually making money because they got their stuff in crypto right now. Actually, you just lost all of your money, but you're like, give me two months. I'm making it all back, right? Like, the thing is, is we live in an incredibly financially complex world, and unfortunately, the church has done a very poor job of saying, this is how we should think about money. And basically leaving a narrative void for how we should interact and interface with it. And I think into that complexity, Jesus' words are so incredibly important. Even if you don't believe in God, I think if you do what Jesus says, it will make you better at handling your own money, even if you never view it as God's money. So Jesus was talking one day, and actually Luke records what, he, what we're going to read today. But Jesus tells a story that's one of the most confusing parables in all the Bible. It's, it's the parable that you get to when you 
Sometimes you can tell, okay, in a parable, this is what Jesus is saying, this is what he's communicating. But you get to the end of it, and you're like, Jesus, I have no clue what the purpose of that one was, right? Like, like nine times out of ten, okay, the parable of, like, the prodigal son. Ooh, wonder what that one's about, right? This one I'm just like, no, I genuinely have no clue. So Luke, who is a historian and a doctor, Luke, who traveled around with a bunch of different apostles, especially Paul, would interview a bunch of people, hear all the stories of all the people of the life of Jesus, and wrote a letter to his friend Theophilus and said, Theophilus, I'm writing this to you so that you can have an orderly account of the life of Jesus in whom you believe. And in this, he records this parable that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 16 as he's talking to his disciples. So this is the people who Jesus is close with. Chapter 16, verse 1, he says this. He, being Jesus, also said to his disciples, close followers, so it's like, okay, if you're a Christian, kind of like lean into this. He says, there was a rich man. There was a rich man who had a manager. And charges were brought to him, the manager, that this man, or they were brought to the boss because this man was wasting his possessions. So you got a manager, and you've got a kind of investor, we'll say. And what the investor finds out is, hey, as a manager, you've been misappropriating, misusing my funds, probably for yourself and for selfish gain. So then we've got a problem here. And he called him in, verse 2, and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. Now, this is fairly reasonable to this point, right? Basically, I've given you something. I have entrusted you with something. It's not yours, but I have given it to you to manage for me and for my purposes. And I have seen that you have not done that, right? If any of us had a financial planner or a financial manager, and we looked at them and we say, where's my money? And they say, I don't know. Where'd you spend it on? They said, my house. I'd say, we have a problem, and you are fired, perhaps sued, right? And so this guy has this realization in the story. Not only is this a problem because I'm going to get fired, this is a problem because I don't have a backup plan. Verse 3, the manager said to himself, What shall I do since the master is taking the management away from me and I am not strong enough to dig and I am ashamed to beg? Well, one thing, bro, you could start lifting, right? But he looks at him and he says, man, I don't, I'm, like, I'm not, I, I, can't, I can't dig ditches. I'm not that dude. I mean, I, like, I, got, I got buttery soft hands, right? I don't have, like, man, you know, like, I don't, it's calluses, what? Right? Like, I can't dig. But I also know, man, there's a little too much pride inside. Like, I'm just not going to be the person who begs, but I know I can't do this anymore. And so here's what he comes to the realization of. I have a short time and a short window of opportunity to do something to set myself up for what happens when this management is withdrawn from me. And here's what he decides. I have decided, verse 4, what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master, summoning his master's debtor, one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe the master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. Manager says to him, so take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Now, If you own a house, this is like the dream. This is like the bank calling you and saying, you owe about 200K on your home? Let's let's make it 100. I'd be like, buddy, I I am on my way, right? Like, Like, you're cutting my debts in half 
absolutely, I'm in. Now, here's one thing you need to know about this. They listened to the parable through a set of eyes. They had they'd heard a number of parables Jesus said before. And parables have a basic equation. If you've never heard this, this is important to understand the parable. Parables have a basic equation. One of these people is God. One of these people is us. And there's generally one point that he's trying to communicate. One of these people is God. One of these people is us. And there's one point that God's trying to communicate. And so as they're listening to this, they're sitting there saying, okay, I think we're the manager. Not really sure exactly where we fall into this. But this guy has started to cut debts, and I don't think the manager is going to be too happy about that. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. Which I would say, whoa, 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 what about the 50% off that you just gave Buddy over there with the oil, right? Well, let's talk about our negotiation skills, but apparently this guy was not as skilled, and so he only gets 20% off as opposed to 50% off. And so the master, and this is what's fascinating, because, again, if you uh, haven't read this, this is, this is the part that's interesting because... It's interesting because this is counterintuitive to what everybody thought. Jesus was a master storyteller. And so when Jesus got to this part, they're thinking, this guy is done for. This manager, it's over. He is no longer going to be manager. In fact, he might be prosecuted and killed because of the fact that he just not only mismanaged his master's money in the first place, he misappropriated the rest that he had been in management over for his own selfish gain. This dude's done. And then Jesus flips it and says the exact opposite. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. In other words, the master comes home and was like, bro, you just set yourself up for the future? High five, that's smart. I like it, buddy, right? Like, like we would never really think that. We're, we would think, okay, no, he came home and he faced the consequence and the judgment of the decisions that he had made. But the manager just, for whatever reason, comes home and says, wow, honestly, good call. That was, that was impressive. You were creative. You were innovative, entrepreneurial. You only had a short time, and you did something with that short time. Now, at this point, if you're in their you know, Jewish audience... I don't think any of us would have understood the point of this parable. And thankfully, Jesus zooms out in a second. But we would have thought, okay, so one of this is God, and one of this is me, and I'm pretty sure I'm the manager, and I'm pretty sure God's the one who's entrusted me. So you're telling me if I rip off God, he's giving me high fives, right? Is this like be good or be good at it, right? Is that kind of where we're going with this parable, Jesus? And then Jesus just does a masterful job as he says and zooms out. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. In other words, people who think this life is all there is to life are actually more shrewd than people who think this life sets us up for the life to come. People who think that this life and this kingdom and building my own life, and building my own wealth, and building my own kingdom for what I see and I have right now. Just, man, they're just this shrewd idea. It's not just like, 
it's not a morally positive or negative. It is a way. It is a sense of street smart. It is a sense of, of discerning. It is a sense of creative. It is a sense of I am mining this for information and I'm figuring out ways and thinking through different things. And he says, okay, so there's a group of people who just do it for this world. And honestly, they're better, at mo- they're better than most of us who believe in Jesus. And some of us would say, well, I mean, that's because we don't believe in this world is all there is to this world. That we believe there's a world to come, there's a life to come. And Jesus kind of flips that and says, well, maybe then what we should do is this next verse. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth. This wealth meant mammon. It wasn't just cash. It wasn't just money. It was a sense of everything that you have, this sense of ma- the, uh, wealth, mammon, all-encompassing, all things, money, cash, assets, land, property, everything that you have, the essence of all our material possessions. He says, I want you to think about it through a different lens. That if some people build what they have in this world for this world, then I want you to think and use what you have in this world so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Now, to be fair, theologians panic about what this means, but I think it's fairly simple. In, in the... Uh, in a engrafting of a uh, new international bin version of the Bible where we mixed a little bit of what Dale Carnegie says with what Jesus says, it basically is this. I want you to take what you have to win friends and influence people for the kingdom of God. I want you to creatively, entrepreneurially take and think about everything that you have, and I want you to use it for the kingdom of God. Win friends, influence people, leverage what you have, not borrow debt, but leverage everything that you have in such a way that you win win friends and influence people for the kingdom of God. Here's why I say it's bigger than cash. Because here's what you and I both know. Money, and if you don't know this, you should know this. Money is not a thing. Money is a socially agreed upon value for a pledge of assets that we have a communal, societally ascribed, shared value in. Some of you are like, Can, man, I took art class. Okay, I get it. Here's, here's what that means. A dollar doesn't have intrinsic value. It represents value. Because if I go to Chick-fil-A and I'm trying to get a number one, right, I'm not going into it and saying, okay, barter system, I'm going to give you three packs of sausage, you know, three packs of, uh, two packs of short links, a hot, and a, and a thing of baby links in exchange for this chicken sandwich, right? That, that just wouldn't make sense. So what we have, or take it to a different level, here, can I have a bunch of chicken sandwiches? I'll give you this goat instead. The Kathy family who owns Chick-fil-A would be like, no, go home to your farm, Right? So it's a lot easier to trade this doll than it is to trade this chicken in our day and age, or most all day and ages. And so when he says this, it's not necessarily this one particular thing that's this green money that's you know, got dead presidents on it that most of us haven't seen. Can you think about us? When's the last time you saw a $5 bill? Some of y'all are like, yesterday? Okay, rich person, get out of here. You know, just kidding. $10, $20? Like, like when you, you, you had money, like cash. The funny thing is we don't even see it for the most part anymore. A little bit here and there. And what Jesus is communicating is is, is imagine a world. Imagine a world where the people of God realized that that thing inside of you, that drive inside of you, that ambition inside of you, 
to go do something, be something, create something, invent something, build something, save something, invest something. What if that thing inside of you was actually the fingerprint of God? And what if that thing inside of you had been misappropriated to the point where we thought everything that we have is for ourselves, for our consumption, but in fact, what we're supposed to do is realize that God has given us these gifts and these desires to be leveraged for the kingdom to come. What if he has called you to start a business? But the business that you start and that you run for profitability and for margin, you know why we want to have profitable, filled businesses with lots of margin? Because it frees up the availability to be generous with what you have. And so you start a business with the intention of having a double bottom line. Um, anybody in the, uh, you can do a show at raising hand, anybody in the NFT space, anybody know about that stuff? A lot of you guys like NFC, no freaking clue. Okay, well, this isn't going to land, but I'm going to say, okay, we got one person. Thank you. Whew. You know, so like, so there's this thing called uh, Board Apes Yacht Club, and if you know about that, then you probably have a lot of money. Um, but it, it basically, it's this thing. It's a non-fungible token. It's this digital asset, which you don't, you probably understand what it means. You just don't understand why anybody would pay for it. That's a different conversation. But let's just say that the cool thing about those is, if you're an artist and you create something and you sell it, what you can actually do is put a smart contract on top of it. A smart contract on top of it basically means every time this thing is sold to somebody else, you make a portion or a percentage of whatever your smart contract outlines. And so in your smart contract, you say, every time this particular NFT is sold as a creator, as an artist, I'm going to sell this in such a way that I make 10% off of whatever that sale price is. So as it goes from $200 to $2,000 to $200,000, and so you start, instead of the Board Apes Yacht Club, you like the Board Discipleship's Canoe retreat. I don't know, right? right? Like you start your own thing, and here's the thing. In perpetuity, it gets 10% royalty. You take that 10%, you invest it in two different funds. One, just a general index fund because stability, and also some type of a digital asset crypto fund, right, because returns. And so you put those two together, and all the interest that that thing spins off, you take half of that, reinvest it, and split into funds, 25-25, and the other half, and you fund missionaries, and you have literally just created something that for the rest of the internet, or the rest of that NFT being traded will continually fund missionaries to spread the gospel around the world. Like, we ask, like, do I have to give 10%? I feel like God's like, grow up. No, 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 you shouldn't, like, and, it, and again, it's not about giving. It's about me saying, God, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I that live, but he that lives in me. And so everything I have, God, is yours. And so everything that I have, I realize I am simply managing. I don't own it. It's yours. I'll give it back to you whenever you want it, however much you want. And, God, I'm going to leverage what I have in this world for the next world, for the next kingdom. Let me give you one more example of this. I think it's relevant because I just said a bunch of that stuff. And if you don't understand any of that, go back and listen to the sermon in five years. I really think you will. Let's say Harry Styles is coming to town. Some of you girls are like, whew. And you had, you could get floor tickets for 200 bucks. Isn't this true? We find ways to connive for the things that we want. There's a festival out of town. There's an away game. We're playing LSU. And we'll figure out a way to pay for that. That's what we want. 
And here's all it's saying. What if we took that same energy that starts a company, that same energy that creates something in the tech space, that same energy that says I want to save and build wealth, generational wealth in my future. What if we took that same energy that says I want to connive and figure out a way to get to that concert on the floor ticket or go to that festival or go to that away game. What if we had that same energy for the kingdom of God? So here's three counterfeit habits, or four, I'm sorry. I'll go through them fairly quickly that I think get in the way of this. Number one, number one I call this the God tax, the God tax. So we view God like the government in this particular version. And again, this is not bad intrinsically. We view God like the government um, where I give him a percentage that he requires of me, um, and then I just do the rest. I do whatever I want, whatever else I want with the rest, right? As long as I'm paying my taxes, the government shouldn't have any real concern unless I'm doing something illegal with what I do for my the rest of it because I'm just simply building my wealth. So we view God like, okay, Jesus, um, I have been crucified with Christ. There's no longer I that live, but he that lives in me, except for the 90% that I earn. And I'm going to leave 10% still there. He says, no, 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 I'm, I'm in charge of all of it. I'm in charge of all of it. God, we're saying you're in charge of all of it, not just this little percentage of it. Number two is this. Um, Random acts of generosity. Random acts of generosity. Now, on the, again, on the surface, seems fine. Is random acts of generosity uh, good? Yes. Is giving a percentage to God good? Yes, absolutely. But random acts of generosity basically says, I'm not going to be strategic. I'm not going to plan. I'm not going to think. I'm not going to do the hard work, and I'm not going to budget. I'm just going to, as I have extra available, give it to somebody who I see in need, which really just means I usually give a couple of bucks to somebody on the side of the road. Let me ask you this. If you invested your money with the way that we act generously, would you trust you to be your money manager? Because if I'm money managers, we want them to be strategic. We want them to be planned. We want them to have some type of an overarching idea, thought, framework for how. We want to know the types of investments we're going to agree on with the risk portfolio that I have a personal threshold for which in small business is high, right? Like, like I'm, I'm doing all of these thoughts and analysis, but I also want them to have the openness and the availability and the agility to be able to pivot and go into a different direction as they see a potential investment opportunity for me. Now, that's much different than just saying, oh, here's somebody who has some need. Let me give it to them. It's inclusive of that. But I would never trust my money with somebody who just simply says, I don't know what I'm going to do with it. I got no framework for it. I got no plan for it. I'm just going to use it for a little while until I see somebody who has a need. I'm going to give them five bucks. I'm going to invest five bucks in this thing. We'll see if it turns out. Number three. Number three is this. Um, This is one of my favorites. It's one of my least favorites, which is why it's one of my favorites. Um, it's just this. It's just God just wants my money. God just wants my money. At the end of the day, isn't that true? Just God just wants my money. Let me be, let me be incredibly clear and direct on this. If God wanted your money, he would take your money. The God I believe in is big enough that he does not need your permission to take what you have. Perhaps, 
Perhaps there's something else behind that. Perhaps what Jesus said was true when he said that the chief competitor for our heart is your, our money. When he said that where your treasure is there, your heart will also be. And perhaps God is less concerned about our money and more concerned about our heart. Because if he has our heart, he has everything. But what I really prefer is a kingdom without a king. My kingdom without having the accountability of God with what I have in my kingdom. God just wants our money. No, he doesn't. God just wants your heart. He just knows it's the chief competitor for your money. If God wanted your money, he would take it. And then God's up in heaven like, man, if I only had five more bucks, bro, I, I would love to get a, to like value size this meal, but whew, I, man, I wish I could get an extra Zach sauce. Number four is this one. Um, <laughs> this is for everybody under 30 years old. Um, this one I just call the, uh, the counterfeit habit of being a broke boy. <clears throat> B-O-I, yeah. Some of y'all are like, that's not how you spell it. That's okay. He's just different generation. Um, here, 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 here's, here's the broke boy counterfeit habit. is to say basically that I will be good with my money when I have more money to be good with. I will start to be wise with my money. I will start to be strategic with what I have. I will start to be strategic with the cars and the phones and the house and the apartment and the, you know, disposable income that I have once I have more. Because when I have more, I'll be able to do more and I'll also have more that's free to do with. And I get that. I understand that. The problem is that's never how more works. More doesn't make you more just reveals what you already are and already are doing. Here's how Jesus actually says this. He goes to this very next verse. You can drop down to verse or the next verse, verse 10. He says this, One who is very faithful in a little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. In other words, if you're dishonest with a little, you're going to be dishonest with a lot. If you're faithful in a little, you'll be faithful in a lot. But I've never had somebody who I was like, here, let me trust you with my car, and they just trash it. And I thought, oh, man, you're going to do an awesome job with my house. Right? That's silly. And so Jesus looks at me and says, come on, this is obvious. And if you have not been faithful in what is another's, who will give you which is your own, that which is your own? In verse 12. Um, and, and again, I get this. I get this because the thought is, well, but the pushback is, well, when I have more, it, it's not so much of what I have, it's just if I leverage everything I have, I'm going to leverage all like $17 that I have because I'm a sophomore who lives off of, I don't know, ramen, like, right? Like, whatever it is that you, which ramen is really good. That gets a bad rap. We need to redeem that. <clears throat> um, let me paint a picture of being an adult for you. Why this makes no sense. This just reveals the habits. I remember thinking, man, if I ever made 100 grand, like, we wouldn't margin, room, we'd have everything. Let me just break down some basic financials for you. You start with 100 grand, you're in a 25% tax bracket, which means you're only bringing home 75. Of that 75, um, you decide that, well, one, you got a, you're 100 grand, you got a wife, you got kids, or you got a husband, you got kids, whatever it is. Um, you decide that I'm going to have kids, I've got 75 grand, um, we both work, well, I guess we got to put our kids in daycare. Let me tell you, daycare is the devil. <laughs> Let me just, just be honest. I'll be fully financially transparent in this. My kids' daycare costs 1000 bucks a kid a month. 
And some of you are thinking, okay, well, you go to some elite daycare. It's the hippiest daycare in town. And I love it. I think it's awesome. I think it's phenomenal, and they provide food, and it's, share, it's, just, it's beautiful what they've created there at Creative Preschool. It's where I went to preschool, actually. It's where I love it. Like, half the people who's too, who were working there when I was there, they're like, Ben. And I'm like, Ben, you changed my diapers. This is weird, you know? But I'm telling you, they're, they're awesome. But here's what that just meant. thousand bucks a kid, you know, a month, which means if I have two kids, that's 24 grand gone. So now I'm down to 50, right? And then my kids can't just, like, my family can't just, like, live wherever because I want them to be a place where when I'm not there, they feel good, they feel safe, they feel whatever, right? And so between the actual mortgage payment, the debt service that I'm going to do on it, the insurance that I'm going to pay for it, I didn't save enough, so I've got property mortgage insurance on it and on, on top of that, which isn't an intrinsically bad thing. But on top of that, all of that which goes into escrow plus the basic payment is going to be about two grand a month. So now I've got another 24 grand that's gone. So now you're about at 25 grand, okay? And at this point, we haven't talked about the car bill, which by the way, if you have 25 grand and four people, what that means is to live off for the rest of the year, you've got about $6.25,000 for all 12 months to live off for four different people. We haven't talked about your car. We haven't talked about your car insurance. We haven't talked about your gas. We haven't talked about your, your grocery bill. We haven't even started to discuss whether or not you have Comcast, because that just continually goes up, right? Like, like there's so many different, you mean your groceries, you haven't gone on your first trip, you still haven't quite gotten to that concert that you thought you were going to be able to go to, right? And it's on the ground, because you're like, it's either I go to this concert or none of us eat for the next month, right? And so it continues to go on, and so you've got 25 grand to make all of these disposable income decisions, and then you look back and say, dang, I forgot to give. Well, you throw giving in there, we're, we're rationing our ramen at this point. You know, what, you know what more does? More doesn't make you better. More just makes things more complex. There was a great philosopher, brilliant, who said this. More money, more problems. And the more complex it gets. And if you're here and you're young and you're just on the, on the precipice of that, let me tell you, this is so important for you to hear. I wish, I wish someone would have told me this, and if they did, I wish I would have listened. Because you are setting yourself up for financial patterns and habits that are going to go with you for the rest of your life. And if you start now, you don't do what the average American does, which is to make asset wealthy purchases and acquisitions that leave us cash poor. Because here's the truth. We always like to think, what if Jesus called me and said, sell everything you have, give it to the poor and come follow me. Based on the current level of debt the average American does or has, if Jesus called, it to, called us to do that, we would not be able to execute it because we would sell everything we have and still be in debt. I genuinely think if I viewed everything I have, and again, if you're not a Christian, if, if you're not a Christian, you just play along with this idea. If everything you had, you were investing for someone else, spending for someone else, and you had to give an account for all of it, isn't this true? We would be wiser. We would have more. We would save more. We would spend more economically. And we would do it in such a way that we would also have some margin to give. And we would view everything that we have as someone else's to be leveraged for their kingdom, for their purposes. 
And so he finishes it with this thought in verse 13. No servant can have two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money, mammon, wealth, possessions. Now, very few of us would ever be self-aware enough to know I'm serving money, not God. I heard somebody say it this way, which I think is clarifying. We will either serve God and use money for that purpose, or we will serve money and use God for that purpose. And very few of us are ever self-aware enough to say, I would use God and serve money. But if we were to ever reverse engineer the negative events in our life, I think that's what we would find. Here's what I mean. You got a family? You love them more than you love your, your life itself and yourself. And in the middle of that family, a really difficult event happens and you lose your job. Something happens, you lose your employment. You want to know what the first thing we pray is? God, where are you? Why is this? Ha- why are you, are you even there? Do you even care? You know what if we were ever to unpack that, that really says? God, your existence is contingent on my employment and financial well-being. And I think it's a legitimate prayer because you love and you care about your families. You love and you care about things. I mean, I, I get it. I'm part of it. But here's the point. We will either decide that what deserves our life is God. In everything that we have, we wrap that around him, or we will decide that everything that we have is for ourselves, and we'll just service God as long as it takes to make him happy. And the beautiful part of what Jesus did was that Jesus didn't just say to do this because we ought to, or that we should, or that it's a good idea. You see, if we were to give everything to God, there in any transaction is a value proposition. Is the value of what I'm gaining worth the value of what I'm giving? Is it at least equal or perhaps and hopefully in my favor? If we gave everything to God to get God, we would be getting everything because God is immensely more valuable than everything that we have. But that as an aside, the reason that we give, the reason that everything is God's is not because of the fact that just he deserves it. It's not just because of the fact that he has given it to us. Yeah, we've worked hard, of course. It's because of the fact that he gave everything for us when we were utterly undeserving of it. It's not a sense of generosity simply for the sake of generosity. It's generosity that's fueled by the love of God, which creates inside of me a reciprocity. That I'm giving to God because, God, when I was a sinner, God, in fact, I still am a sinner. That's kind of the problem, right? Like, God, while I was still a sinner and am still a sinner, you died for rebellious me. You gave everything for me. And so when I do this, I'm just giving back to you what you've already given to me. 
Man, I imagine a world, I imagine a church that's not fueled by how much do I have to, but what creative ways can I think about? What creative ways can I negotiate about? What things can I do to actually begin to add value to the kingdom of God? And whether or not you ever give to this church, I honestly, again, don't really care that much because we're going to be fine. God has always provided for us. And maybe it's for the nonprofit that you're a part of. Maybe it's for the ministry. Maybe it's for the missionary. Maybe it's for one of the thousands of people that come out of Florida State that raise money for Campus Crusade or Navigators or, you know, whatever the different things in campus ministries are. But I mean, come on. What if instead of just saying, I'm going to start a bunch something and make a bunch of money for myself, what if there was a tech space that Christians were doing something creative, innovative, and developing value for the kingdom of God? What if we created venture capital firms, but not so the fact that we can just build our own wealth and we can have our own private island? I mean, that would be fun too. But what if we actually did it because of the fact that we believe God has called us to create incredible and interesting things that minister to love and serve, and so out of the money and the profit that's gained from it, we send missionaries to the nations and unheard people groups and develop Bible translations in new ways and shapes and forms. That's why I'm like, man, when people talk about, like, should we give 10%, I just, I'm just like, grow up. Because that's such a small view of what God has called us to. We love and serve a God who died and gave everything for us. The least we can do, not even the least we can do, what we're compelled to is a sense of creative, entrepreneurial, I have been crucified with Christ, building of his kingdom. And let me finish by saying this last thing. If you're in here and you're skeptical about God and Jesus and faith, my guess is, Part of the reason is because somewhere along the way, you encountered a group of Christians who said they believed until it cost them something. And you saw that they weren't willing to sacrifice for this thing that they confessed that they gave their life to. What if you met a group of Christians who were obsessed with God, who everything they had was for him? And generous, of course. I mean, you've never seen people who gave and who loved and served with no boundaries, no pretenses, no pre-qualifications. They just gave and loved and served because they knew a God who gave everything, loved them and served them while we were still sinners. And they just said, if God would do that for me, the best way I could display God to a hurting, lost, and broken world is to do the same. Two questions I want you to ask yourself in application to all of this information. Number one. What's one thing I can begin doing this week that leverages what I have for the kingdom of God? What's one new thing I can begin doing this week that takes everything that I have and begins to leverage it for the kingdom of God? I would love to say 100 things, everything, but you know how it is. You're going to get cut off in the parking lot, and you're going to lose your temper, and then it's like, oh, what sermon, right? So just one thing that you can do. The other thing is this. What's one creative way that you can invest what you do have to multiply it for the kingdom of God? not the kingdom of me. What's one thing you can take what you do have and use it? What's one way that you can take what you have and multiply it? And all for the kingdom and the glory of God. And I would love to be a part of a church community that does that, that gets that. So let's pray. And I'm hoping God makes us into it. Jesus, we just thank you for the fact that you gave us more of a framework than a to-do list. God, the framework is simple. You own it. We're managing it. 
We want to be as shrewd as we possibly can, as wise as we possibly can, as creative as we possibly can, as entrepreneurial as we possibly can to make a difference for your kingdom. God, I pray that there are people who work in state government and they use their jobs in state government and what they amass from there, what they acquire from there, what they accumulate from there, the relationships, the people, the, the houses, the, whatever it is, that they would use that in a way that glorifies you and builds your kingdom, not our kingdom. I pray for the person who's going to create the product or start the business or do the thing that's going to take on a bunch of risk, and they're going to see a huge amount of reward for it. And God, I just pray that they would be a kingdom-minded, focused people. I pray for Christian venture capitalists. I pray for Christian real estate developers, not just because of the fact that they're Christian, but because they are driving what they're doing through the lens and grid of, God, you own everything that I have. In that because of that, people would be loved. People would be served. People would be cared for. The hungry would eat. People who have not heard your name would know your name. That the world would be changed through a group of people who say, I will not live in a society in which I allow people who are only building this kingdom for themselves to be more thoughtful in how they view what they have. Because I believe that there's more to life than this life. And I'm going to spend my entire life leveraging everything I have and everything I am for your kingdom. And God, I pray you would give the wisdom to know what to do with all this, know where we are in it, and the courage to do it. And it's in your name, Jesus, we all pray. Amen.